0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is Executive Director of the Australia Institute and he joined me to talk about federal COVID-19 policy failures as well as the real causes of inflation currently causing rising interest rates. This is according to the Australia Institute's latest research. It is my true delight and pleasure to welcome onto this program, once again, Dr. Richard Dennis, who is Executive Director of the Australia Institute. He's also an economist, and if only maybe a year ago, he was a Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. So he really does know what he's talking about when he's talking about the economy, as well as climate change and a whole range of other issues. So I can't wait to talk to Richard about many things We are going to talk about federal COVID policy. Obviously, that would intersect with state policy as well. We'll talk about the Reserve Bank of Australia and its role in jacking up interest rates and what the real causes of inflation are, according to the Australia Institute's new research that was released last week. So, without further ado, I welcome back onto the show Richard Dennis. Hi there, Richard.
1: Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me on
0: can't wait to chat about these issues because I think that all of these issues really are affecting Australians right now in so many different ways. And it's not like economics is this thing outside of us. It feels like it's directly affecting how we live, work, what we can afford when we go to the supermarket. So we will tackle interest rates and inflation in just a moment. But one thing that is also affecting us every single day, but is not being talked about pretty much at all at the moment, is COVID-19. It's something that we've been covering on this show with people like Brendan Crabb, who you were on a panel with on ABC 7.30, and you've also written a piece for The Monthly about it. And I wanted to get a sense from you as to what triggered you to continue to engage in this debate when so many people are not, when it's become not only something that people want to ignore, but when people do enter a debate about it it becomes very toxic and quite ridiculous. Some of the the things that are thrown around by people who deny that it's a real problem.
1: Yeah, <laughs> look, it's a great question. It's a surprising question in some sense, but um, it's a great question because no one else is asking it. Look, I, I guess I'm still interested in COVID because because science because data <laughs> because <laughs> it's 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 killing last year covid killed more people than lung cancer breast cancer prostate cancer car accidents and drownings combined and in december last year the federal government put out a press release about covid which was good they also put out a press release about HIV, and they also put out a press release about Japanese encephalitis. That would be one each. So, yeah, to the extent that mm. science and evidence informs our decision making, to the extent that science and evidence plays a role in our policy, then I think what's happening with COVID is remarkable. But then again, perhaps not, because 30 years after promising to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we're still building new coal mines and new gas wells. We're not we're not reducing them. We're still increasing them, so yeah, that both of those things frustrate me. But I, I'm 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 consistent. I think we should pay attention to the science.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. It was something I brought up with a climate scientist uh, a few months ago. I was saying, do you see the parallels between the denial of science between climate change and also COVID nineteen? And she absolutely could see that because she deals with that issue up close every single day. I wanted to address some of the stats that you just mentioned, because I did see on Twitter the other day when we saw some statistics come out that apparently COVID-19 in Australia is now the third highest cause of death in the country. So things are absolutely increasing on that front. And you say in your monthly piece that across last year, as you said, COVID-19 killed more people than lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, car accidents and drowning combined. And in addition to the 15,000 deaths directly attributed to COVID, the ABS tells us that there were 20,000 more deaths last year than would usually be expected, largely due to the fact that people who have had COVID tend to die more quickly of the other diseases they have or, and I'll add this as well, they might die from things that they didn't have, which are things like a heart attack or stroke because, as we know, there are vascular risks that increase after COVID infection. These are things that I don't think many Australians are aware of, Richard the excess deaths in particular, and that not only are there deaths directly attributed to COVID, but there are many more deaths than Australia, a highly rich and wealthy country, is now experiencing. And, and Brendan Crabb had put to me that excess deaths should be in the negative. I wonder what's your thought on, on that and the government's response to this and whether the government has changed its tone around the way that they talk about the impact of COVID-19 and deaths and illness.
1: Oh yeah, look, absolutely. And let's be clear, in Australia, there's a reason that we spend enormous amounts of money, tens and tens of billions of dollars a year on health, uh, and that is that you know, for for you know, for most of our history, uh, we've kind of thought that helping keep people alive was a good idea. That's why we spend a fortune on expensive screening for breast and prostate cancer. That's why we spend a fortune on expensive screening for bowel cancer. Uh, That's why we spend so much money helping people who get sick and we keep them in hospital and we spend a lot of money looking after people to keep them alive. And that's always seemed to be a good idea, comma, except when it comes to COVID, in which case we just think differently. Uh, So, yeah, the fact that Perhaps people don't quite comprehend how significant it is that an infectious disease, an avoidable infectious disease that we have measures that could reduce is now our third biggest cause of death. Keep in mind that our biggest cause of death, things like heart disease, they take decades to cause. Hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, so we know what causes heart disease in most people. You know, some, some young people uh, accidentally through, you know, very early in their life without behavioural indicators get sick and, and, and die from heart disease. But the vast majority of uh, heart disease, for example, takes decades to accumulate. Um, COVID just showed up a couple of years ago and it's kind of killing people really very quickly. And that's, that's a brand new phenomena. And once upon a time, we were proud of our efforts to protect ourselves from it. Once upon a time, we were proud of our efforts to control it. And now we've, we've literally just let it rip. Uh, and yeah, 20,000 people dying you know, it's entirely up to Australia whether we care about that or not. But we, I guess we have to start asking the question, if we don't care about all the people dying from COVID, why are we still going through the performance art of mm. trying to prevent other diseases? Like what, what, what is the point of our health policy if we're unconcerned about something like 20,000 deaths from COVID?
0: And what's the point of the whole field of public health? Yeah, we might as well just cancel it. I don't know why we have it. It's a big failure of public health.
1: It, well, I hate to say it, it's not. It's a failure of our either collective will or our parliamentary will. Uh, I'm sorry to correct you, but I, I think the public health people are doing their bit. Um, they some have, of them.
0: Not all uh, of them, though. Of them. I would say okay, there are some people who are dissenting and, and yes. you know, say don't you don't need to wear a mask, masks don't work, yeah. you
1: know. That, that's that's true, absolutely. Uh, but I guess my point is the evidence is there. Mm. We're, choos- we're choosing not to act on it, uh, and and that is 100% consistent with with climate science. You know, we we're just choosing to ignore it. Yet, you know, we're about to spend 250 billion dollars, a quarter of a trillion dollars, uh, on nuclear submarines that might come in handy in 30 years' time. Maybe we're not sure, but better be safe than sorry. So we're willing to spend a quarter of a trillion dollars on nuclear submarines just in case, but, oh, you know, encourage people to wear masks in in indoor public spaces or, you know, spend money to clean up the air in our schools or our public buildings. Oh, that's a bit crazy, Richard. You're overreacting there, son. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you are. You're so alarmist, Richard. <laughs> um, I I wanted to point out one of those contradictions that you do in your piece, and that is the messaging around it. As we know, the government's message messaging and basically its actions indicate, hey, COVID's no big deal. It's just like the flu footnote it's not just like the flu so we don't need to do all of these public health interventions that we did before like social distancing masks indoors and on public transport etc air filtering ventilation but then they do come out and say hey, guys, we've now approved a booster vaccine. We've got two bivalent vaccines. One's on the way. Please go out and get your booster if you haven't been infected in the last six months or you haven't been boosted in the last six months. So I think a lot of people are wondering, well, why would I go get boosted if the government says that COVID's not a big deal anymore?
1: Yeah and look absolutely and as a consequence of that you know we've we've got some of the most incredible technology ever invented in some of the quickest time ever invented mm. that is vaccines against covid you know literally expiring on the shelf because the the health promotion message is both well it's it's muted and conflicted and I guess I'd emphasize both elements of that a, we're not really talking about COVID at all. And B, when we do, we're talking about it in the confused manner you just described. So yeah, it's 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 remarkable. And the you know, the, the fourth dose boost of vaccines in Australia, the, the percentages are really low. And, you know, now Australia has one of the highest death rates from COVID in the developed world. One of the highest. But yeah, we're not we're not talking about that.
0: No, not at all. You point out some of the economic issues of COVID in your piece as well, and obviously the fact that the government rolled back access to paid leave for people who didn't actually have the ability to isolate and to take time off if they were infectious, particularly those workers who are casual, for example, and wouldn't have those entitlements. But you also point out that long COVID is making a serious dent on the economy as well. So I wondered, could you talk us through some of your thoughts about the economic effects of of COVID and long COVID?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the obvious, well, let's be clear, the, the health effects are the most important. Yeah. But when, when people die, they don't go to work <laughs> and, and make stuff and they don't go to the shops and buy stuff. And, and when people are really sick, uh, with COVID, uh, they're they're not at work. Uh, so, and, and when they get long COVID, they have to stay off work for long periods of time. Now, people who are quite sick usually need someone to care for them, which means it's not just the people that are sick, that are out of the workforce. It's the people that they are caring for them. So kids, kids with COVID need a, a parent to stay at home and look after them, for example. So what we're talking about here is uh, because we have very, very high numbers of COVID cases in Australia, not that you'd know it, we've got very large numbers of people who are sick, uh, in isolation and or and/or suffering from long COVID, uh, and, and, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of people here in a normal week, which means that the, the economic effects of this are really quite significant. No one's talking about COVID as a driver of a skills shortage. No one's talking about COVID as, uh, as, a, as a driver of low labour force participation. But the reality is when, when that many people are are quite sick for for long periods of time, uh, we're going to have real economic consequences. And then with long COVID, it's not just the the participation, it's not just the inability to work, but we don't have a welfare system or a health system uh, or, uh, or a sick leave system that's designed to cope with tens, hundreds potentially of thousands of what would usually be uh, healthy, wealthy, middle-class people getting sick and staying sick and not being able to work for significant periods of time. What happens to people with a mortgage if they get long COVID? Um, you know, yeah. we just... We haven't had to grapple with... And don't get me wrong, uh, we've always had a uh, disease burden. We've always had uh, people, um, you know, losing their homes because they lost their jobs because they were injured or couldn't couldn't work but we're not used to that happening at mass scale for years at a time and and that's that's emerging now
0: absolutely and richard you say that solutions exist and we've listed some of them but you're saying here that the argument that many might put in against yours would be, oh, well, we don't want to go into lockdowns again. We don't want to do all of those things. We we were told we just had to get the vaccine and we've done our bit, you know. Then we can get back to normal. That was what we were sold. We know that that was a furphy, what we were sold. It wasn't true because vaccines, although they're excellent at preventing serious disease and death in many cases, they don't prevent transmission. So what are some of those solutions that you see and that so many others like you see are the easy, minimal impositions that can be put into place to reduce transmission, to reduce the health burden and the economic burden?
1: Oh, yeah, well, as as you say, I mean, it's, it's it's startlingly simple. It's it's bizarre that it needs repeating, but it, mm. it clearly does. Um, well, people should get vaccinated. Uh, and and they should uh, get boosted as soon as they're eligible and as you said the new bivariate boosters are, uh, are even better than the old ones uh, they 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 slow transmission but they as you said they don't prevent transmission but they're very good at stopping people dying which is a usually a very good good thing um, so step one uh, get vaccinated step two get boosted step three uh, all of the social distancing norms that we we were, that we all became so familiar with um, still work, masks, particularly in crowded spaces and indoor spaces, uh, avoid crowded indoor spaces, sit outdoors if you can yeah, open windows, um, you know, make sure that uh, people around you are respecting your personal space, respect other people's personal spaces, install air cleaning and filtration. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that governments can be doing, that schools can be doing, that that public buildings can be doing. And, and to be clear, other countries are doing this stuff. Um, you know, mm. you were talking about, you're talking about Professor Brendan Crabb, I mean, I'm still struck by hearing him say that in the 18th and 19th century cities decided to clean up their water and it was the sort of, you know, best thing for human health ever. Uh, He thinks that the 21st century challenge, if we're going to live this closely in such dense populations, we need to clean up our air. Even if it wasn't for COVID, it would be a great idea to clean up our air.
0: And we've heard that testimony at the Long COVID Inquiry, which has been happening in the last couple of weeks, by people like Professor Jeff Hamner from OzSage who's an expert in clean air. There were many experts there talking about this and it was interesting to see that the panel were really thinking, oh well that's pretty hard. That's like a big thing. How hard will it be to change our buildings to, you know, monitor our air and it seemed like there wasn't a particularly strong appetite for those kind of interventions. You know, if you go to Denmark and you want to go to the cinema, you'll often see a CO2 monitor number outside the cinema to know what the levels are in the actual cinema so just how well ventilated the space is these are things which seem pretty easy to implement that a government could easily regulate for but it doesn't seem that australia has the same appetite as some of those other european countries and i just wondered you know why is there a bit of a disconnect between australia and some of the other countries i'm not saying all because obviously the uk and the us are particularly bad at this but there are other countries doing something
1: yeah, look, it's a great question. You know, why is Australia still building coal mines when the rest of the world's trying to move away from coal? Why is Australia buying nuclear submarines at a time where a lot of countries are trying to get more, um, you know, invest more in nuclear non-proliferation? Um, look, democracies are a strange, strange things, but I do think that a big part of it in Australia is that... Um, because the previous government made such a mess, uh, the Morrison government made such a mess of the vaccine rollout and, uh, and and the opening up of restrictions and the free rat tests or the refusal to offer free rat tests, because the coalition made such a mess of it, uh, they just don't want to talk about this issue. And because they don't want to talk about it, Labor is under absolutely no pressure to do anything. Because if Labor, you know, unilaterally sort of said, we're going to try to help fix this problem or we're going to set some targets here for boosters or anything, excuse me, any goal that Labor sets for itself, can be used in two ways. One, uh, they can be attacked by people that think COVID's no big deal, but two, they can be attacked for underperforming if they don't achieve their own goals. So unfortunately, democracy really only works when, when there's a contest of ideas, when there's pressure. And when there's bipartisan consensus to run dead on an issue, whether it's whether it's COVID or coal mines, when there's that bipartisan consensus, it's very hard for people to very hard to convince the media that something's important. You know, if the if mm-hmm. the Prime Minister and the opposition leader both shrug their shoulders, it's it's as if in Australia that means it's not important. Well, That means there's a lot of frustrated climate scientists and and a lot of frustrated public health experts out there because uh, the fact that the Prime Minister or Mr Dutton don't want to talk about COVID or climate or COVID or coal doesn't mean we've fixed the problem. It just means we're ignoring it.
0: Yeah, excellent point, Richard. Let's jump into inflation and interest rates because this is, as I said, it's affecting people directly just like COVID is. And the Australia Institute has been working very hard on this topic for a long time. I know we've talked about it in the past, as well as, you know, the Reserve Bank's remit, its kind of reason for being and its role in dealing with the economy and inflation. And we have just heard Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank of Australia's governor, warn about a, quote, wage price spiral, which sounds scary, doesn't it? But the Australia Institute has released a new report saying that essentially there is evidence instead of a profit price spiral, not a wage price spiral. Richard, could you tell us what this all means? Could you go back to the beginning, I guess, and tell us what is really underpinning inflation here and what your research is telling us?
1: Yeah. um, So uh, in Australia, as as we've just been talking about, it's, 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 it's wonderful living in a democracy. We can worry about any problems we want. We're not worried about climate. We're not worried about COVID, but we're very, very worried about inflation, very worried about inflation. So we we have a war against inflation. And in our war against inflation, the Reserve Bank has increased interest payments on the average mortgage by thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year. And we take that for granted. That's how important the fight against inflation is, that an unelected Reserve Bank governor uh, can increase the cost of people's mortgage repayments, and, and we all just say, fair enough we we can't we couldn't possibly spend money to tackle climate change we couldn't possibly inconvenience people to fight covid but we can we can lift mortgage repayments by $10,000 a year on young families and and that's a small price to pay for winning the fight against inflation so we need to kind of get it into perspective first that we we as a society are very willing and able to bear costs when something's important and clearly, our uh, our governments think inflation is very important. So there's there's that, and then there's the is you know is it actually going to work? Now the problem is uh, most of our inflation. For the last 18 months, has been imported inflation. We've had record energy prices thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we've had imported materials, particularly building materials, uh, from China because China's had uh, production problems thanks to COVID. So the prices of things we've imported have gone up, uh, and and that's caused a lot of inflation. And increasing interest rates isn't going to make the world price of energy cheaper. So we've, But now we're kind of moving into stage two of our inflation where we're seeing an enormous profit grabs from companies like Qantas, for example, lifting the price of airfares way above the cost of uh, any increases in the cost of fuel. And, and their enormous profit grabs, their big price rises, are now driving this inflation. But rather than say we've got profit-driven inflation or rather than say we've got, you know, imported inflation, uh, thanks to world events beyond our control, we've kind of had this phony conversation for a year about, oh, we better be careful we don't have a wage price spiral where we increase wages and wages will drive inflation because wages are too high. Well, actually, real wages have fallen faster than ever. And inflation's risen faster than it has in decades. So it was always absurd to suggest that wages were driving inflation or were likely to drive inflation. Uh, but absurd or not, that's the nonsense we've had to put up with. And our, our recent data just clearly shows that it's it's firms lifting prices really fast, not because of wages, not even because of costs, just to increase their profits. That's what's driving a lot of our inflation.
0: Absolutely as you talk about and as many have discussed in the last few days, we have had wages data come out and it's obvious that wages are not keeping up with inflation. That's kind of stating the bleeding obvious. But as you say, real wages have fallen. And in fact, they fell in Australia 4.5% in 2022, which is the largest fall on record. So really, uh, Australians are doing it tough because it's harder to afford things when your wages aren't Going up, they're going down, and also prices, obviously, due to inflation, are going up. You say that corporates and big business have been posting big profits. The report by the Australia Institute does report some of these particular companies, like, as you say, Qantas, who posted a $1.4 billion half a year profit, which meant they tripled revenues. Woolworths posted a 25% rise in profits. On Wednesday, on Tuesday, Coles posted an 11% half-year profit. Santos, the gas and resources company, posted a 221% annual profit. Ampol reported a 30% increase in first half net profit. And the Commonwealth Bank, of course, who is certainly benefiting from rising interest rates, posted a record $5.1 billion profit, which is up 9%. Richard, that's pretty overwhelming when you hear that. And it seems like daylight robbery. How is this allowed to happen? And I guess what can anyone do about it?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a tough time to be a, a, a big shareholder in, in Australian companies. It's, uh, yeah, post-COVID they're really struggling, aren't they? <laughs> um yeah. Look, uh, so profit is the difference between you know the total revenue a firm gets and and the total costs of of making their product. And when you can increase prices faster than your costs are going up, you you make a lot of profit. And let's be clear, that's the job of companies. Uh, they they have a legal obligation to maximise profits for their shareholders. Uh, not to make Australia nice, not to make Australia fair, not to look after low-income earners, not to be loyal to their customers. Their their job is to maximise profit and they're doing a very, very good job of it at the moment. Uh, and we, rather than uh, congratulate them and say, aren't you doing a great job and, you know, that's ba- that's good news for you, it's, it's bad news for your customers, it's bad news for your workers, but well done, instead of just openly admit what's happening, yeah, we, we still have this nonsense that, oh, we better be careful not to let wages rise too fast or that could cause us trouble down the track. So, yeah, our, our research focuses on the role of profits driving inflation. What can we do about that? Well, in the short term, I, I guess what we have to... We, we, we need to talk about what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't keep increasing interest rates and keeping wages low in order to slow down the profits of these companies. That's not gonna work. So we need to stop doing the dumb things. Uh, so that's the sort of urgent uh, thing we need to do, like stop stop pretending that wages uh, are behind our inflation. And then what can we do? Well, I think we need to look at the market power of these firms. We have to look at how it is that we've wound up with uh, four major banks with so much market power and so little competition, two major airlines with so much market power and so little competition, uh, two major grocers with so much... Much market power and so little competition in the long run competition between these firms is good for workers it's good for customers it's good for productivity growth but it's going to take years or decades to unscramble the mess caused by the last 20 years of just kind of letting uh, of deregulation and of, of letting big firms merge so yeah, we've really we've really caused ourselves some trouble. We're creating one of the most concentrated economies in the world. So that's what we need to fix, but in the short term we have to avoid false solutions like if only we put enough pressure on on young families, that'll stop inflation. No, it won't.
0: Indeed. Some of the really interesting stats from the report that I just wanted to draw out for those listening, if if you haven't heard it already. As of the September quarter in 2022, which is the most recent data available, Australian businesses increased prices by a total of $160 billion per year, over and above their higher expenses for labour, taxes and other inputs, and over and above profits generated by growth in real economic output – what I found even more particularly uh, interesting was that excess corporate profits, according to this report, account for 69% of additional inflation beyond the RBA's target. And you were saying that rising unit labour costs, so you know human workers, account for just 18% of that inflation the pace of inflation would have fallen within the RBA's target inflation ban if this all hadn't have happened with the profits, corporate profits. And we're talking about large businesses here in particular. Richard, what does that mean when the average person hears it? Because I know I might be saying a lot of gobbledygook to some people and then others might have understood what I just said.
1: Yeah. So we measure inflation through something called the consumer price index. So every uh, you know, the, the Australian Bureau of Statistics are out there looking at all the things that we spend our money on, uh, from our lettuce and our coffee to our rent and our petrol, and, and they calculate the consumer price index. And uh, so, we know that we can see the price of petrol go up and down. Uh, the consumer price index allows us to keep track of kind of what's happening to prices in general. Now, the Reserve Bank wants to keep inflation at two to three percent. Not two and a half to three and a half, not two to four, not one and a half to two and a half. These are arbitrary numbers, but we've we've got this, the RBA has it in their head that two to three percent inflation is the right range. And they've been trying to keep inflation in that range for a long time. By the way, some countries don't have a range. Some countries have a different range. These are arbitrary numbers, and we need to never forget that. Anyway, inflation was below the 2 to 3% target range for a long time, and no one really cared. No one said, gee, the Reserve Bank's failing. You know, We need to stimulate the economy, get some more inflation, get the economy growing faster. Uh, but they didn't do that and instead the RBA just kind of bumbled along. Now inflation is well above that 2 to 3% range and the RBA has completely hit panic stations. And uh, the, the, the only kind of lever that they want to pull, the, the main lever we've given them, is interest rates. So they're pulling on this interest rate lever on the idea that if they increase people's mortgage payments enough, people will, won't be able to go and buy a coffee, won't be able to go and uh, buy a new television, won't be able to go and buy a whole bunch of other things. So if people are too broke to buy things, then demand for things will fall and in turn prices won't continue to rise as much. So that's what the RBA's kind of logic is. But what our research shows is that what's driving the inflation isn't consumers rushing out to spend lots of money, it's it's companies just increasing their prices to, in order to increase their profits. Uh, and there's no law to stop them doing that, but it seems pretty weird that we would rely so heavily on controlling interest rates to control consumer spending, to control inflation, when the thing that's driving the inflation isn't consumer spending, the thing that's driving, uh, the thing that's driving uh, inflation, is firms jacking up their prices a lot faster than their costs are rising.
0: Yeah, I wondered if interest rates do keep increasing as the RBA says they will, and as you said, they shouldn't. Is there a risk of recession or any other even more damaging effects than, of course, taking money away from consumers?
1: Absolutely that's a risk. I mean, in nineteen ninety-one we had the recession we had to have because the Reserve Bank at that time was so worried about inflation, it, it thought a, a good a good recession would be good for us all. The recession we had to have. So, yeah, if we keep increasing interest rates enough, we could actually get enough consumers to cut so much spending that firms have to start laying off large numbers of staff. Uh, And by definition, you know that if if the economy starts to contract, then by definition that's a recession, and we expect unemployment to fall and uh, and all sorts of other bad things to happen. So, yeah, it's hard, but you know, a fish can't taste the water it swims in, and we're so used to hearing that the Reserve Bank increased interest rates that it kind of doesn't shock us to hear it, but. Remember that the reason we can't tackle climate change is because it might inconvenience some people and cost some money. And the reason we can't tackle COVID is it might inconvenience some people. But when it comes to tackling inflation, we will increase your mortgage repayments by 10000 bucks a year, and we don't give it a second thought. Well, we should give it a second thought, especially because it's unlikely to work. Mm.
0: It was interesting to see that an ABC reporter, Gareth Hutchins, had written a piece in in the middle of February, on February the 12th, with the heading, Is there a better way to kill inflation than raising interest rates? Now, you've obviously made the case, as there's clearly a better way. He was saying that, well, if the RBA is going to keep raising interest rates every single time, shouldn't we be not giving all of that money away to the banks so that they can have higher profits and pass it on to their shareholders? Shouldn't we be putting that money away for those people who've basically had that income taken from them and put it into something like superannuation. So they can't touch it, but they'll get it in the future down the track. That's obviously not you know, a great fix in the sense that wouldn't it be great if the RBA didn't raise interest rates. But what do you think about that idea that perhaps when we're in a period like this, that those interest rates could be quarantined in some way, like the, the money from it?
1: Yeah, look, I, that's actually the original idea behind compulsory superannuation. Uh, back in the 90s, the ACTU was pushing for a wage rise, an economy-wide wage rise. Uh, the Labor government at the time uh, and the Reserve Bank at the time thought that a wage rise was badly timed and might cause inflation. So the compromise was that workers got a pay rise, but the pay rise was given in the form of compulsory superannuation, that is retirement savings that they couldn't get their hands on for decades, instead of immediate cash in their pocket. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, there's, there's all sorts of creative ways that we can try to resolve these problems. But to be clear, if the thing that's causing inflation is profits, if the mm. thing that's causing inflation is firms lifting their prices uh, far faster than their wages are growing, far faster than their other costs are growing, then no matter what we do on the consumer side, uh, it's not going to be a very good way to control that inflation. And and there's the risk that the more we do to restrict consumer spending, whether it's through... Uh whether it's through compulsory savings or interest rates, the more we do on that front, uh, the greater the risk we might end up causing a recession.
0: Yeah. So then if we think about, okay, uh, it's caused by this profit price spiral and they're clearly companies, big companies, aren't going to voluntarily reduce the amount of profit they're making, what is the role of government? Can they intervene at all, whether it's in the profit price spiral or in things that are typically within their remit?
1: Uh, yeah, there's lots they can do. Uh, we, You know, the governments can directly push some prices down, like the, consum- uh, like the, you know, childcare. We made it free during COVID and it lowered the consumer price index quite significantly. Um, uh, so there's direct things governments can do to lower the prices of some things. I said before there's competition policy, uh, which actually will take a long time but is very important. We've got to stop letting big firms merge. We've got to stop letting big firms accumulate some much market power that it's easy for them to jack prices up like this, uh, and then of course we can introduce super profits taxes, uh, and 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 that means if we if we can't stop them making the money, we can tax it back, and we can and we can use that money to help people cope with the with the rising cost of living caused by the profits.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because it reminds me, obviously, of a very related issue: superannuation tax concessions. And Zoe Daniel had said about that particular issue. While she's cautiously open to discussing that, she wanted to see something like a windfall profits tax. And that's something that we've discussed on this show before. Do you think that that would make a big difference?
1: I think, well, it won't make a big difference in the short term. It just won't. Um, if, If firms are making a windfall profit by charging us record prices for our groceries, then that's hurting us today. A windfall profit allows us to collect some of that money that's taken from us and give it back. Uh, but um, uh, and and a hundred percent support introducing one. But in the short term, we're going to uh, we're going to need different things. But uh, I hate to say, it, in the short term, I'm going to have to wrap it up. I'm sorry, Amy. My next uh, my next interview is calling me, so I'm very sorry. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Amy. Thanks.
0: thanks, Richard. Bye. I've just been speaking with Dr. Richard Dennis. He's executive director of the Australia Institute, and we've just been talking about the real cause of inflation and uh, rising interest rates, as well as the Reserve Bank, its role in the whole issue and COVID-19 policy as well. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.